0: Back in the mid '80s, Dr. Carson was here uh, and spoke uh, about 2 Corinthians, and so I'm interested in uh, in asking you to welcome him again this morning. And this is a day when we seek God's presence and blessing, Dr. Carson. I'd like to begin by um, reading John chapter 2, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. John 2, 13 to the end of the chapter. This is what Scripture says. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. So reads John too. Probably at some point in our lives, most of us have um, engaged in the, the rather ridiculous but somewhat amusing parlor game where someone yells out a word and you've got half a second or a second to yell back the first associated term that pops into your head. Uh, you can't do it with uh, 150 people. with too much noise. But with 15 people with virulent imaginations, it can be uproariously funny. And so the question arises in this instance supposing we were to play that game now and I were to yell out one particular word what would you say we won't play it there's just too many people but but think in your head now when I when I'm about to uh, give you one word what comes to your mind Are you ready Temple <laughs> Oh you're such a bunch of pious people you probably immediately think of you know the biblical temple in Solomon's Day, or, or maybe this text that we've just read, or whatever. But if you did this on the streets of Ithaca, or you did it in downtown New York, what would the association game look like? Well, some people might conjure up the Taj Mahal. Some people might immediately associate oh religious bigotry with the term. Others that come from a fundamentalist Baptist background or something like that might think of a First Temple Baptist Church in Sarnia, Ontario, or wherever it is they're from. Um, Who knows, you see? But I doubt that most of us would have the associations built into our minds that, that, that were connected with a term like temple in the first century. For a start, under Roman law, the desecration of a temple, any temple, from any religion was a capital offense hard for us to believe today. The reason was, of course, that um, the Roman Empire was interested in preserving the peace. And in this diverse, pluralistic society, that's one of the ways they did it. There is a reason, historically for it, of course. You recall in the Old Testament that when the Babylonians took over, and before them the Assyrians, when they became the superpower. They uh, they immediately transported the, the top people from any particular country that they, that they captured. That was because in the ancient world, in so much of paganism, there was a kind of 3 link, people, religion, and land, people, religion, and land. So if you could get the people out of that land, because the gods were so often viewed as sort of tribal deities associated with the land, you, you were breaking that three-fold link. There was much less chance of rebellion. So it became imperial policy under the Assyrians, and and the Babylonians did the same thing, to transport people away. So that was the exile, of course, in biblical terms, but it wasn't just the Jews they transported. They transported the Moabites and the Edomites and so on and so on and so on. You see, it was imperial policy. The problem with the policy, of course, was that it was destroying your tax base. And and, and thus all these clever people whom you transported had to start over again in some other place in the empire as dirt-poor farmers. And um, and thus, fiscally, it was not very shrewd. It preserved the peace, but at a pretty catastrophic price. So, as a result, under the Persians, the policy was reversed. And in the providence of God, that's what was used to bring exiles back. You see, but it wasn't just the Israelites who returned. Also, the Edomites returned, and the Moabites returned, and, and so forth. But then you still have the problem of of of, of what to do with uh, with uh, the, the, the the constant threat of rebellion. The Romans invented another policy. They arranged for god swaps. Whenever they took over some new turf, they insisted that the locals take on some of the gods from the Roman pantheon, and they, in turn, took on some of the local gods into the Roman pantheon. That meant that if there were ever civil war, you couldn't be quite sure which side which god was on, which sort of dampened down the enthusiasm. You see, it was another way of breaking up this threefold cord of gods, religion and land. And then, to up the ante a bit, they still made it a capital offence to desecrate a temple, any temple. Which is, of course, precisely why at Jesus' trial some of the false witnesses tried to get him on that charge. Do you remember? You can find it in Matthew twenty six, twenty seven in parallels. Some came forward and said, This man said, destroy this temple Well that sounds like desecration of a temple to me, doesn't it? it didn't stick for reasons we'll see in a moment in, in in the jewish mind of course it was tighter yet the jews who inherited old testament revelation had far stronger reasons for revering the temple of yahweh in jerusalem than most local local um, uh, 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 tribes had with respect to their uh, religions partly because Most pagan religions had such a plethora of gods that if you destroyed one particular temple or one particular association, there were always others as well. But for the first century Jew, this was the temple, Zion was the hill, Jerusalem was the city where God, the living God, the one God, the sole creator and sovereign had chosen to meet with his people. The sacrifices offered there were tied directly or indirectly to all of their history to the Exodus, the Passover, the giving of the law, the tabernacle and all of the wanderings in the desert, ultimately to David and Jerusalem and the the beginning of the monarchy, to Solomon and the erection of the first temple, to the destruction of the temple and the beginning of the exile, Jews being transported to Babylon and writing this magnificent poetry, if Ever I forget you, old Jerusalem, let my right hand be cut off. And then the rebuilding of a much smaller temple, a two-bit thing in comparison, and then the massive enlargement and beautification that had been going on for 46 years under Herod. Still, God chose to meet his people here. It was a sacrifice every morning and every evening. Three, now four, great feast days that brought up such a Large percentage of the Jewish people to the capital year after year after year. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest, and only the high priest, once a year, took the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat and entered behind that curtain that no one else dared broach and sprinkled the blood of those two animals on the top of a wooden chest the so-called mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Thus the temple had come to represent for the Jews far more than any modern church building or cathedral might symbolize. This place was unique. It was the focus of hope, of messianic expectation. Hence, in the birth narratives in Luke, you, you, you come across Anna and Simeon waiting in the temple, waiting for the coming of the Messiah, you see And even for the worldly, the nature emphasis, though it was political, though it was tied to national self-identity, was still heavily bound up with the temple. Even zealots were not simply manipulating people by appealing to the temple. During the wretched siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 66 to 70, before the temple was finally destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, for those four years when the city was shut up, and they were consuming what food they had from the inside. They had their own internal water supply and so on. Not a day failed. Even when the starvation became so horrible that people were eating the dead bodies of other people, you can find the descriptions in Josephus, even when things had got that bad, they never failed to offer the morning and the evening sacrifice until the wall fell, which meant that they were preserving animals that no one dared eat because they were restricted for temple use. Now, into this world, the world in which the temple was paramount, Jesus, the Messiah, was born. It's not our world, it was his world. And the passage before us tells us what Jesus thought of the temple. And I'm, I'm not sure we can understand exactly what he meant or even generally what he meant, until we begin to see the sheer importance of the temple in the mind of a first century Jew, such as Jesus. If we understand the passage right, we will not learn something about church buildings, which, in comparison, is an entirely negligible subject, but what it means, in fact, to meet God, to come face to face with the living God and be acceptable to him. Now, it might be useful to divide the passage in front of us into three parts, in each of which something is predicated of the temple. First, verses 13 to 17, the temple must be cleansed. The temple must be cleansed. Now, a small excursus. Every serious reader of the Bible knows that there is an account of the cleansing of the temple during Passion Week, that is the week that leads up to Jesus' death. It's reported by all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not by John. John mentions the cleansing of the temple here the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2. The majority of biblical scholars today hold that there could only have been one such cleansing, and therefore they say somebody's got it wrong. They say, amongst other things, had there been two cleansings, the temple authorities surely would never have let Jesus get away with it entirely the second time. Uh, Once caused consternation enough. But if he even started the second round, they would have uh, immediately stopped him and arrested him. There were enough security folks around. Moreover, they say, theological reasons can be advanced as to why... John moved the account here, or alternatively, why the Synoptic Gospels moved the account. And, and thus, um, they're playing fast and loose, one side or the other, with history in order to make their, their account um, theologically slanted in some particular direction. How shall we respond? Well... It is certainly correct that sometimes people do move things into non-chronological orders to, to provide topical arrangements of things. Um, I remember a few years ago reading Antonia Fraser's magnificent biography, Cromwell, Our Chief of Men. And uh, until the years of the Protectorate, she follows largely chronological order. And then for the years of the Protectorate, she gives us four chapters of of, of a topical discussion. And at that point, of course, you've got to sort out your your sequence on some other ground than merely the the, the series in which he records incidents. It's a topical arrangement. And and certainly if you read, for example, Matthew 8 and 9, there you have ten miraculous stories, ten miracle stories. And in Mark's gospel, those ten stories are scattered over the whole thing. Here Matthew has gathered them together into a nice little clump. Because he is organizing things on a topical pattern. So that sort of thing goes on all the time. But it's a bit different if you claim to be locating something at a particular juncture, when in fact it didn't really happen there. Then at that juncture, you seem to be making a a claim that is not true for the sake of a, a theological advantage. And then one has a bit more difficulty. It has to be said, moreover, that some scholars are chronically unable to accept two similar events regardless of the evidence. They just can't stand doublets. It gives them indigestion. Always they have to be explained in literary terms. We should not take too seriously the argument that the authorities would not have let Jesus do it the second time. I could well believe that argument if you tried to do it the next day. But if, in fact, you do hold that uh, Jesus... um, did it first in Jerusalem uh, at the beginning of his ministry, and then two and a half to three and a half years passed before he tried it again, during which time he had come up to the temple repeatedly, probably several times a year. Then inevitably the authorities would let their guard down. Well, he did that at the beginning of his ministry. He was younger then, you know, and he was sort of making a scene, but he, he wouldn't do that sort of thing today. And so obviously uh, um, they, they let the guard down. So I'm not sure that that is much of an objection. A straightforward reading of both John and Synoptic Gospel shows that in both accounts the report is tied to that period of Jesus' history. In other words, in the evangelists' handling of their respective accounts, there is no hint here of a merely topical arrangement. Moreover, the theological reasons that some scholars advance to justify the view that John moved the story are unconvincing. For example, um, one uh, spends several pages in his commentary arguing that John moved it from chapter 13, quote, to make room for the foot washing, unquote. <laughs> to make room for the foot washing? It makes it sound like a jigsaw puzzle, where the, the pieces sort of have to be taken out to fit in another one. But as far as I know, you, you can add one story to another story. I, mean, I, I don't even know what that sort of argument means. Moreover, it is important to remember, and this, in my view, is the most uh, convincing reason of all, it is important to remember that all of the material in John chapters 1 to 5, all of it, has no parallel in the Synoptic Gospels. That is, the Synoptic Gospels begin with Jesus' Galilean ministry. But you get the impression, even reading the accounts of the Synoptic Gospels, that it begins with a bit of a bang, and one wants to understand what happened a little earlier. John tells us, in effect, he tells us of a rather slow beginning in Judea before the beginning of the Galilean ministry. And in that context, then, you can understand why the Synoptic Gospels did not mention the earlier cleansing, precisely because it belonged to that period in the south that they didn't even treat, they didn't touch any of that material. Whereas um, John records that earlier sort of proto-ministry before the Galilean ministry kicks off. And in that frame of reference, then, historically, he includes something that is um, is, is not reported elsewhere. Moreover, and this too, in my view, is convincing, that there is what is what might also almost be called an accidental collocation of the Johannine account and the synoptic account. Do you recall that passage that I referred to earlier from Matthew 26 and 27? When the the, uh, the people who want to see Jesus executed bring forth witnesses who say, this man said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's reported in the Synoptic Gospels. But there is no report in the Synoptic Gospels of Jesus actually saying it. All that you get is the report of the attack, but not the report of Jesus saying it. Moreover, it says that that charge didn't stick because they couldn't get the witnesses to agree. Well, if Jesus had said it during Holy Week, just a few days earlier, the witnesses would have had to have been remarkably slow not to have remembered it for those two or three days. If, in fact, he had said something along that line two or three years earlier, one can understand why the memories were a bit fuzzy around the edges. And um, from that perspective, it seems to me that these are accidental collocations between John and the synoptics, which have the historical effect of reinforcing the credibility of the other account. Now, that's uh, merely historical rambling by the by. We come now to the actual cleansing. In the temple courts, Jesus finds men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Every devout male Jew, 20 or over, had to pay a temple tax. And this was supposed to be paid in Tyrian coinage because of the purity of its silver. This meant that when people came from around the empire, bringing their own money with them, they had to change their money. So this was providing a needed service. Moreover, if people came from Tarshish, from Spain, or from Italy, or wherever, and were going up perhaps on this once-in-their-lifetime pilgrimage to Jerusalem on this high and holy day, you could understand that they didn't necessarily bring sheep with them. And, and so as a result, they would bring money and then buy the animals. And so as a result, it was a wonderful business that was set up to, to provide the pilgrims with all of the animals that were necessary for proper sacrifice on, on Passover and for other high feasts. So there was a sense in which all of this was entirely legitimate. But Jesus here, verse 15, made a whip out of cords, drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. What are we to learn from this? Two things. First, the worship of God must not be devoured by forms. Jesus says, get these things out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? You see, this service had at one time been carried on outside the city, across the Kidron Valley, on the lower slopes of Mount, the Mount of Olives. But at some point, some bright entrepreneur thought, you know, we'll be doing our customers a service and undoubtedly increasing the trade if we bring this into the temple precincts. So they set it up in the court of the Gentiles because they didn't count for much in any case. And you can imagine the scene. Instead of the whole temple area being quiet and hushed, you now have the bang of sheep and the smell must have been wonderful. And and then inevitably the trade that goes on, over here, over here, give your special discount, over here, over here, it's a Mid-Eastern bazaar for goodness sake, you know. It's not somebody with electronic cash registers. This is really a, tough, a Mid-Eastern marketplace in the temple courtyards. The temple courtyards which historically had been so quiet that even when the temple was built, No sound of a hammer was ever permitted. Every stone had to be cut elsewhere and transported and fit into place because no noise was supposed to to prevail in the temple precincts. And now instead, you see, sheep and trade and cattle and noise and bartering and stench everywhere. And so Jesus responds as he does. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, when he does clear the temple without saying anything about destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. In the Synoptic Gospel, what he says is, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves, a lot of our translations say, probably lesai, the Greek word means guerrillas, a nationalist stronghold. It wasn't a real place of worship, and the charge there wasn't even a charge of corruption. It was becoming more and more a nationalist stronghold, precisely because... It was the Gentile courtyard that was taken over. But here the charge is a wee bit different. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? In other words, from from all external appearances, they got the purity of the silver right for their coins. They had the right turtle doves and purebred lambs, the appropriate bulls. Everything was formally correct. And the service, therefore, was entirely in line with Old Testament prescribed law. And yet, somehow, the whole thing was debased. The details were right, and somehow God himself was forgotten. One remembers what the prophet Hosea had said eight centuries earlier. I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offering. It becomes a kind of domesticated religion. Lest we think that this was merely something that could happen to Jews and temples in the first century, Paul runs into something similar, does he not, in 1 Corinthians 11 in Corinth? The Roman world worked on a ten-day cycle. The Jewish world worked on a seven-day cycle. When the Christians came along, then what were they to do? Well, they worked on a seven-day cycle following the Jewish pattern, but increasingly they met on the first day of the week. But because the first day of the week only rarely coincided with the tenth day for the Roman cycle, therefore Christians meeting on the first day of the week had to meet early in the morning or late at night. If they met late at night, then, then who showed up first? They often had a whole meal together before they had their actual uh, corporate reading of Scripture and singing of hymns and Bible teaching and the Lord's Supper. And, and those who were independent, wealthy, they own their own businesses perhaps. They could show up early and they could bring a bottle of wine with them and have some fellowship and spirit. A nice bottle of Beaujolais to increase the discussion, you see. And then eventually the, the hourly workers would, uh, would, would would eventually show up. And uh, they would join in, too. The first ones had been eating their prawn sandwiches. And um, the second ones would be bringing their peanut butter sandwiches. And, and by the time the things were rolling along quite nicely, then eventually the slaves would appear. And they would inevitably be last. And sometimes they couldn't bring any food at all. They were slaves, for goodness sake. They had to put the children to bed and take out the garbage of their owners and so on. And then finally they'd be released if they wanted to. And they'd be arriving. By this time the meeting was in full swing. And some who had been enjoying spirit for quite some time were were, were feeling quite happy about things, you see. And then the slaves would show up. Hungry. Late. Excluded. Inferior. And then you have the Lord's Supper to celebrate the unity And thus Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, Now concerning the Lord's table, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Strictly speaking, they were doing what Jesus said. You know, they they, they were breaking the bread and taking the wine, and and they, they, they were formally obeying what Jesus had commanded. Do this until I come, and they were doing it. But somehow they had managed to preserve the formalities of religion while nevertheless domesticating God himself. The worship of God must not be devoured by forms. And then the second thing to observe is this. God's anointed, God's Christ, does not win popularity polls in a fallen world. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This is an Old Testament quotation from, verse, from Psalm 69, verse 9. It is one of the numerous Davidic Psalms where David is portrayed as rejected by his friends, not understood precisely because of his loyalty to God. Here is the first glimmer of recognition that the Messiah would be opposed and suffer. It's not, the text does not simply say that zeal for the house of God would occupy him, but zeal for the house of God would consume him. Of course, it's metaphorical language, but there is a sense in which it is precisely Jesus' zeal for God, for his households, for the people of God that would bring him to the cross, would quite literally devour him. We sometimes give the impression in this fallen world that if only people were good and nice, and pleasant, then the whole world would run smoothly. That is not the biblical witness. The biblical witness is that when people are genuinely, genuinely good, good in the sense that God approves all they say and do, there is always a reaction against them, by at least some. I don't, I don't care how good a king you are, or how wise a prophet you are, how honest a broker you are, precisely because it's a fallen world, there will be some people who resent you precisely because of the goodness. And if you're in business, you know that's the case. If you're in academic life, you know it's the case. There are few places that are more vicious than a decent university. Because if you're bland and mildly corrupt and not advancing very far, then you're easily dismissed. But if you really are good, then people envy you. Or target you. Or secretly rub their hands in glee when, when you fall. No, but not everybody acts like that. I understand that. But, but there's a lot of that that goes on too. Isn't so what happens then when the Son of God himself appears and speaks the truth? And is transparently concerned for the glory of God and for the good of his people and for the integrity of the old covenant religion, even in corporate worship, and on and on and on and on. God's anointed, God's Christ, does not win popularity polls in a fallen world. So then, the temple is cleansed by Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and we learn these two preliminary lessons from it. Second, the temple must be destroyed and must be raised again. Now these enigmatic verses, 18 to 21. The temple must be destroyed and must be raised again. At one level, of course, the Jews, which expression in John's gospel means quite a lot of different things. Here it refers to the temple authorities, the representatives, perhaps, of the Sanhedrin, since all of the parties in the account are Jews, including the writer. At one level, these Jews had the authority, indeed the obligation, to challenge the credentials of someone who would act like this. In one sense, they were entirely within their rights. Nevertheless, the question, verse 18, is somewhat magnificently naive. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? You see, they display no critical self-examination whatsoever to reflect on whether Jesus' charges were just. They are more interested in power and authority and precedent than they are in whether or not the charge is just. More importantly... If Jesus had just been some hooligan, some thug in the street, who on a bad day, perhaps with too much booze in him, had decided to have a little fun in the precincts by overturning the tables of the money changers and whipping up the animals by beating them with cords, then they wouldn't have asked him this question. They wouldn't have said, oh, by what authority do you do this? Well, he's hiccuping in his vomit. No, this is not, that's not what would have happened. You see, they would have thrown him in jail, beaten him up for his pains, and that would have been the end of the account. The very fact that they ask the question recognizes that, that there is something to him that is different. He's already begun his public ministry in the South. He's already forming something of a following. They see that he is a religious teacher, and now he's making a religious teacher's charge. But... If this is a serious religious teacher and a serious religious charge, then they should at least be asking him why he is making that charge. Instead, they don't answer, they don't address the heart of what he says. They turn it immediately into an authority question. By what right? That is, you're challenging our turf. You are invading what is our domain. What right do you have to question what we are doing as we regulate these matters? But it is Jesus' answer that is so shocking. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Clearly, Jesus' opponents did not have a clue what he meant. Equally clearly, Jesus' disciples did not have a clue what he meant. John says so. We are told. After he was raised from the dead, verse 22, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed. Up to that point, they didn't have a clue. They didn't know what he was talking about either. In which case, why even give the answer? Why say something that you know full well will not be understood by the authorities who have asked you a question, nor by your disciples who after whom, after all, you are trying to train? I suspect we can learn three things. Number one, in the context of all of John's gospel, and in fact of the New Testament, we can see what he meant. That still does not address the question why he said it here. We'll come to that. But we can see what he meant. Jesus himself, he is arguing, is the ultimate meeting place between God and his people. He is himself the ultimate temple. Now, we saw the preliminary signs of that last night in the prologue, did we not? Where, in connection with the Incarnation, we're told the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The point is the tabernacle and later the temple was the great meeting place in the whole heritage of Old Testament religion between God and his people. This was the place where God came down in Shekinah glory uh, over the most holy place and in the wilderness wanderings, according to the Book of Exodus and, um, and and the Pentateuch more generally, when when God wanted the people to move on, the glory would 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 move off, and people then would collapse the tent and pack up their things, and the people would follow again. And and and, and when the glory stopped, they they would set up the tent a tabernacle again, and the glory would come down and so forth. And eventually, the people did enter the promised land. And centuries later, the the, the, the tabernacle was finished, and Moses and, and, and Solomon built the, the, the temple, and we're told at the dedication of the temple, that, that the glory of God came down in such spectacular array that the priests had to leave the building and could not face it. That's the last thing that is said before Solomon begins with his magnificent prayer of dedication there he says, look, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. It was the great meeting place between God and his people. It was the place, moreover, of sacrifice, you see, where sin was dealt with. And now Jesus says, in effect, that he himself is the temple. Now, in part, that's part of a whole series of typologies in... John's gospel. He is the Lamb of God. He is the serpent. We'll see that in the next chapter. In chapter 6, which we'll look at tomorrow, he's the manna from heaven, the true bread from God. It is important to see that John is not here out of step with other New Testament writers. There is a long heritage in the New Testament that argues that if you read those Old Testament accounts appropriately in their Old Testament context, they are, in fact, foretelling. They are anticipating something. They are not ends in themselves, but they are predicting something. Now, maybe we can pursue some of those argu- arguments, those biblical arguments, in, um, in, in question and answer later. I won't take time for them now. But this is a way of reading the Old Testament that insists that if you read it aright, if you see it in its historical sequence, then those those narratives of the Old Testament already are announcing the principal obsolescence of the old covenant institutions. That is, they had some built-in death rate. They were guaranteed to die. They could not possibly be ends in themselves. For example, one of the arguments that is picked up by the epistle of the Hebrews in chapters 5 and 7 is this. God gives the Levites to the Israelites. And the Levites accept tithes, and they exercise all of their priestly functions, but before the Levites came, there was the great-great-grandfather Abraham, who himself had paid tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek was himself a priest. Now, in Jewish circles, of course, the older person is always the more honorable. In a youth culture like ours, it's hard to understand that, but 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 in most cultures around the world, that's the way it works. Every time I go to China, I'm honored a little more than the previous time because I'm a little older. I can hardly wait till I'm 80. The older you get, the more you're honored, do you do you, do you, do you see? So Abraham has got to be bigger in people's minds than Levi. But Abraham himself paid ties, you see, to Melchizedek. So now you've got this covenant in place with the Levites fulfilling all their priestly duties. More centuries go by until you come to David. And David announces that there is a priesthood coming according to the order of Melchizedek, which is way back here. Now, if there is a renewed priesthood coming according to the order of Melchizedek, that is already announcing the principial obsolescence of this one, which then calls in question the eternal validity of the entire Mosaic covenant. Now, in other words, the whole argument is a sequential argument. So often Jews in the first century read their Bibles, not sequentially, but what we might call, in the fashion of atemporal systematics. A conservative Jew in the first century, especially in Palestine, would answer a question um, in, 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 in atemporal categories um, along the following lines. How do you please God? You please God by obeying the law. That's what Deuteronomy says. How did David please God? By obeying the law. How did Isaiah please God? By obeying the law. How did Abraham please God? By obeying the law. wait, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Abraham comes before the law. How do you say that Abraham pleased God by obeying the law? Well, we know what Scripture says. Scripture says that you please God by obeying the law. Blessed is the person who does all these things. You see, and cursed is the person who does not. Abraham was a friend of God, so he must have had a private revelation of the law. And doesn't Genesis itself say that that that, that uh, Abraham is God's friend? He, he obeyed all of my statutes. Genesis specifically says, all of my statutes. What are God's statutes? We know what God's statutes are. They're the law. So he must have had a private revelation of the law. How did Enoch please God? He obeyed the law. Wait, wait a minute. Enoch, seven from Adam? I mean, that, that's a long way back. I know, but... Uh, he, He he was blessed by God. He was taken. He he pleased God. He walked with God. We know what that means, to walk with God. It means to obey the law. He he must have had a private revelation of the law, you see? Now, do you see what is being done hermeneutically, in terms of interpretive principle? What is being done hermeneutically is you are elevating the law to the point of atemporal control. You are reading the entire Old Testament storyline, allowing the law has the controlling grid. It has the interpretive key. It is the hermeneutical control. So when you ask, how does Moses, how does Paul differ? Or how does the writer of Hebrews differ? How does John differ? All first century Jews! From their fellow Jews, who do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, how do they differ hermeneutically? How do they differ in their interpretive principles from the Old Testament? That's the question to ask. They have the same scripture. They're both reading the same text. Why does one set come out with one set of answers, and another set come out with another set of answers? Do you see? That's the crucial question. And amongst the answers, there are many answers to that one. But amongst the answers is this question of chronology of reading the Old Testament texts historically in their salvation historical sequence as opposed to elevating one principle, the principle of law, to the place where it has hermeneutical control. Now, as soon as you start reading that way, then Paul says, as he says in Galatians 3, as he says in Romans 4, he says, "Um, look, he says, "Um, you've got to read the account sequentially, and then you discover that Abraham believed God and that was credited to him for righteousness before the law came. And to and, and so Abraham was given the promise that in him and in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was given before the law came. So whatever the function of law was, it cannot annul the promise. It cannot annul the fact that Abraham was justified by faith before the law was given. So, so you cannot say that the reason why Abraham was fundamentally accepted was by the giving of the law when the law had not yet been given. You must read the accounts in their salvation historical sequence. And in that frame, then, after the law is given, then you get these announcements of another priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, which renders obsolete in principle that Mosaic covenant. It is not eternal. It is not final. It is not the last word. It is a step along the Old Testament storyline. In fact, Hebrews 8 goes one stage farther. It looks at the promise of Jeremiah in chapter 31, which promises a new covenant. And the author says explicitly, 8.13, By promising a new one, he has made the old one old. And that which is old is obsolete and passing away. That's what the text says. So, from within that perspective, then, those Old Testament prescriptions, those Old Testament laws, those Old Testament sacrifices could not possibly have been ends in themselves. They were pointing to something else. They were anticipating they were announced. They were not merely institutions, though they were institutions. They were not merely things to be obeyed by those under the, the covenant, though they were to be obeyed by those under the covenant. They were also prophetic models. They were pointing in a certain direction. They were anticipations. And Jesus now claims, in fact, to be what the old covenant, tabernacle, and temple fundamentally anticipated. He himself is the final meeting place between God and human beings. Second, in particular, Jesus' death and resurrection establish him as the ultimate meeting point between God and his people. you recall yesterday in chapter 1, when we looked at verse 14, the whole focus was on the incarnation. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But here Jesus does not say, as the incarnate one, I am the temple, I am the meeting place. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. In other words, he establishes himself as the temple precisely by his death and resurrection. His, his role as the meeting place between God and human beings is established not simply by the incarnation, but by the death and resurrection of the incarnate one. The temple, after all, was the place of sacrifice. Jesus' body is the temple. The metaphor gets shifted a wee bit because you discover in the New Testament that Jesus is presented as the temple and then he's presented as the sacrifice and then he's presented as the priest. They all point to him in different ways. And obviously, if you try and put those together at the same time, you've got such a horribly botched... Establish his authority. Look again at the connection between verses 18 and 19. It's not as if Jesus is not answering their question. Verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. There is a sense, in other words, in which Jesus is giving all of this theology, but there is a sense in which He is answering their question. What is the authority base that establishes His right to do what He does in the temple? And the answer is, it's His resurrection. His resurrection has not yet taken place, but it's coming. And there is a sense, you see, in which it is precisely Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which, in the public mind, establish who he is, establishes authority, establishes identity. Thus, the first century Christians preach Jesus crucified and resurrected. and And then, as Jesus himself says, if some will not accept that he has been raised from the dead, then there is no proper grounding for faith in Christ. None at all. Some will always find that an insuperable dilemma. But then you cannot know him. You cannot trust him. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Does he not? Jesus says, even if someone were to be raised from the dead, they still would not believe. Someone was. With the best attested, evidences for any historic event in the ancient world. Even in such an obscure area as um, manuscript level. We have um, precisely three medieval manuscripts of uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts or fragments and 8,000 early versions. There is nothing like that amongst manuscript attestation for any other literary source in the ancient world. Nothing like it. And the multiplicity of evidences and witnesses. You're not talking here about an oral tradition that went on for three or four hundred years before something was written down. You're talking about things being written down and circulated within the eyewitness lifetime of, 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 of people who saw and touched and handled No, the connection between 18 and 19 is very important. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. It is finally Jesus' resurrection, do you see, which establishes Jesus' authority. And then the last point. As the temple of God, Jesus is misunderstood. As the temple of God, Jesus is misunderstood. Verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And then the next verses don't talk about the temple per se. They mention the Passover feast, but they relate this ongoing misunderstanding, even amongst some who put their faith in him. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. In other words, they trust him. He won't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all men. I want to draw your attention to two points. First, the disciples misunderstood him because the critical events to which Jesus was referring, his death and resurrection, had not yet taken place. In fact, in John's gospel, there are 16 places. This is the first. Sixteen places where we're told that some people did not understand something about what Jesus said or what he did until after the resurrection. There's a time lag in their coming to faith. They didn't understand what he was talking about. Sixteen places there is overt misunderstanding and yet after Jesus is raised from the dead, then they understand. For example, in John chapter 20, um, after after their, they they first come to the tomb, Peter and John and the race, they uh, we're told this is the last of them. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But again and again and again, these these trying to put things together from Jesus' life with Scripture is part of the ambiguity until Jesus has risen from the dead. One of the most interesting, I suppose, is chapter 12, verse 16. Chapter 12, verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him and so forth. Now, there are some implications here for history and revelation that it's worth taking three or four minutes to to think about. Have you ever wished that the Old Testament prophecies were a little less obscure? Hmm? Have you? Am I the only one who's uh, felt this way from time to time? So, I think that we should have a new Isaiah 53, don't you? That would read something like this. This is Carson's Isaiah 53. And then you tell me whether you think it's a better form of scripture. Yes, I know my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek, but you will see the point in a moment. And it shall come to pass in those days, saith the Lord, that there shall arise an emperor with the name Caesar Augustus, ruling from Rome. Footnote. Yes, I know that we're still in the Babylonian period. And after the Babylonians come the Medo-Persians. After the Persians, Alexander the Great and his bands of marauding rifts will take over the Persian Empire and go all the way to India. Then when he pops off at the age of 33, and he will divide up his empire to his four generals, and eventually that will collapse, and, 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 and Rome will come to... There, I know that Rome today is nothing but seven two-bit villages on the left bank of the Tiber, but believe me, it is going to become the superpower of the day. And eventually, Palestine will be taken over by the general Pompey in 63 B.C. And the ruling authority in Rome will come from this family by the name of Caesar, such that Caesar itself will become the sort of equivalent of king or emperor or the like. And the particular bloke at the time will be Augustus. Back to the main text. that there will be a young man by the name of Joseph and his betrothed wife, Mary. Mary will become pregnant, but without intercourse from um, her betrothed. And then you put in all of the the stuff that you get in Luke 2 and Matthew 1 and so on. And then you work right through these detailed accounts of Jesus' life and, and, and the miracle stories and whom he met and Pilate. And his washing of his hands in the water. and Now, wouldn't that be a decent prophecy? I mean, that sort of nailed it down, wouldn't you? And then you have these texts, you know, that are clearly pre-Christian. And harking all the way back to 7th century Isaiah. Now, wouldn't that be impressive? Wouldn't it? I wonder how many babies in Israel would be called Joseph and Mary. Put yourself in Pilate's place. All this stuff, literally fulfilled, and this character is way around you. Uh, There's no way I want him brought into my court. No way! And suddenly he gets in there, this bowl of Flip that bowl of water over. There's no way I'm washing my hands. My, my hands are being dragged over there. I can't help it. You think you've got problems now with, with the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Think what you'd have then, do you see? It adds a whole new dimension to theories of compatibilism and so forth. Now, what God has done instead is given us many, 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 many forms of prediction that were nevertheless, in some measure, obscured. They were obscured for two reasons. The first reason is because God, in his wisdom, obscured them. That is, he did not make all of the Old Testament prophecies that explicit. He made some that explicit. Thus, for example, the prophecy that Messiah would come from Bethlehem of Judea is this clear verbal prediction from Micah. And, 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 and the religious leaders got it right when Herod the Great asked in, in, in Matthew 2 where he was to be born, they got it right. But there are some that come instead in terms of typologies and structures and so on. Do you see? But the second reason why they're obscured is because of our moral blindness. Which is why Jesus, after the resurrection in Luke 24, can say, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Because, you see, none of us in our blindness and selfishness and self-focus could imagine that God would bring about our redemption the way he did. That's our moral failure. The fact of the matter is there's no good evidence that any block of first century Jewish culture, including the proto-Christian block, the block of Jesus' disciples, put together that the same person who was the messianic Davidic king would also be the suffering servant who would go to the cross and bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Not even the disciples. Why? Because they were thick. Not quite up to Ivy League standards, maybe. Dumb fishermen, perhaps. Nope. Nobody else got it either. Because they were fools and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures had written. And the folly, you see, in biblical terms, is not a reference to lower IQ. Folly, in biblical terms, is a moral category. It's the failure to see God and who he is. The failure to believe him and read him and trust him on his own terms. And thus, you see, when Jesus is crucified, you do not find the twelve saying, Yes, I can hardly wait till Sunday. They don't have it together, even then. No one is more surprised than they are on that first Sunday. But after he had risen from the dead, we are told, then the pieces began to come together. But then when they gave their apologetic in Jewish circles, you see, they, they were not simply relating what they thought of Jesus independently of Scripture. They were relating what they thought of Jesus as they reread Scripture along those lines and said, yes, it was there in the first place, and the rebuke of the Master was right. Oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that was written. Now this biblical ambivalence in prophecy is a huge issue. I would love to spend a lot more time on, but I'll pass. And I come now to my last point. Some misunderstand Jesus, the temple of God, because all they want is power, religion. You see, although John has dealt with the peculiar misunderstanding of the disciples, he also wants to emphasize the perennial danger of half-hearted belief. Verses 23 to 25. Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and in consequence believed in his name. They are more impressed with the power displays than they are, in fact, with his word or his teaching or his commitment to go to the cross. Which is precisely why Jesus later says in chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, to some who had put their trust in him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples Indeed This is the place perhaps where we may stop and uh, open it up for questions and comments, and then I'll close in the word of prayer in a few minutes. The question was um, I had asked earlier, what does um, the temple, the word, bring to our minds? And so this gentleman asks now, what does the word sanctuary mean and what does it uh, bring to my mind? And would I explain the relations between the two? Uh, If you were just asking me the word sanctuary in terms of a a, a parlor game, um, who knows what I think of first political sanctuary or bird sanctuary, the Adoka Institute for example and its ecology around the world, I, I might think of all kinds of things. But if, if the question were being raised in terms of, um, in terms of biblical language, um, then there's a huge part of the Bible storyline I have left out here for want of time that is worth putting in. Um, thus, for example, after the, 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 the northern tribes have gone into exile with the Assyrians, and then the, the, in the southern two tribes, the the, the 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 exile went in three ways. The first two ways have taken place, but Jerusalem still stands. And those who are by the banks of the Kebar River, uh, the exiles, in Ezekiel's day, uh, six centuries before Christ, but before Jerusalem has fallen, now, six years before Jerusalem has fallen, they are convinced that Jerusalem can't fall. How could God abandon Jerusalem? How could God abandon the temple? How How could that be? And, and moreover, if he did, then there'd be no home to go home to. It, it, they would really be cut off. And would it mean that all of their religion would be would be um, would, would be false? So while Jeremiah back in Jerusalem is busy telling the people, um, "Don't rebel, or else God will destroy this place," um, Ezekiel is busy telling the exiles um, that place is going to fall. Uh, they are going to rebel, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to crush it. And they all think that he's a bit nuts. But eventually it falls. And as part of his vision um, uh, in, in Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. It's one, one long vision in, in those four chapters. Ezekiel is transported, he says, in spirit. And he sees some of the horrible idolatry of the day. And then in the vision, the throne chariot of God, the mobile throne chariot that he sees in the first chapter, parks outside of the city walls. And the glory of God, the glory that's over the temple, abandons the temple. And, and and then leaves the city and sits on the mobile throne chariot. The whole mobile throne chariot crosses the Kidron Valley and it sits on top of the Mount of Olives and it becomes a symbol-laden way in the vision, this is visionary terms, for, for, for saying that God has abandoned the city and it's only a matter of time before the city falls. Thus, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian might take over, it's really God's action that has done it. And when all of this is explained then to the Babylonians, to, to, the, uh, to the exiles in, by the Kibar River, in chapter 11, God then says, through Ezekiel, you see, all along you thought that was the great meeting place. But, he says, I will be a sanctuary for you. In other words, the real temple is not the masonry. It's not all this clever stonework and the inlaid gold. The real sanctuary is where God is. And, And thus the temple is destroyed, but... But that doesn't mean that all of God's purposes come collapsing down. God himself is the sanctuary for his people. Um, thus, in, in terms of English uh, terminology, there are two or three different words that are used in both Hebrew and Greek for temple, temple precincts, um, and, and, and so forth. And they come across in different ways in our English language. But for sanctuary, um, it does have this notion of, of a place set aside and thus and thus sanctified. It, it's, it's, it's a sanctuary. It's, it's, it's a holy place. And, 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 and God himself is now saying that he will be the temple, the sanctuary, the holy place for his people. When eventually the people are restored to the land and another temple is built, there is no report actually of the glory descending again. There is no report in the post-exilic prophets or anywhere else. And then along comes Jesus and says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So in the New Testament, temple language is used either for Christ himself. Or it's used for the whole church, that is, the place where God dwells by his spirit. And in one or two passages, as in 1 Corinthians 6, for the individual Christian body. But it is never used of a building. I would never ever call a church building a sanctuary or a temple. Because that language gets transmuted either to Christ or to the people of God where God dwells. And then the final vision, of course, in Revelation 21 and 22 is of the new heaven and the new earth. And there's so many of the Old Testament streams come together. And one of those streams is really quite magnificent. The whole New Jerusalem, the whole city of God, is presented as a cube. As long and as wide and high. There's only one cube in the Old Testament. What is it? It's the most holy place. That is the inner room of the temple. Where, where the two cherubim stand, one with his Molded wing touching this wall, and the other one was molded wing touching that wall, and the two wings touch in the middle, and under that is the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was spilled and so on. Only the high priest could go in, you know. That's the only cube. The place where God met with his people in the sacrifices of Yom Kippur. And now the whole city is built like a cube. Of course, this is a symbol-laden way of saying that all of the people of God are now forever, always in the presence of God. God himself is the sanctuary for his people. And then it's made more explicit in chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible. The seer says, I saw no temple in that city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And thus you see the whole fulfillment of a biblical theological line that takes you to the culmination of all these things. Namely, that we are forever and always in the presence of God without any further need for ongoing mediation. That's the whole point. And in that sense, you see, if you ask me in my better frames of mind what I thought of sanctuary, I'd want to say, my sanctuary is God Almighty in the land. Does that make sense? (laughs) Um, The question is, in that sense, am I a sanctuary or temple in in, in, in equivalence? See, I I would want to argue that they function in slightly different ways. Let let me give an, an example that is just a bit removed and I'll come back to it. In the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Covenant, the high priest, there's the priestly uh, tribe that that exercises mediation between the rest of the people and God. They are the mediators. That's what priest means. But in the New Testament, you don't have a separate class of people called priests. The anti-type of the Old Testament priesthood in the New Testament is either Jesus himself, who is uniquely the mediator, thus, for example, the pastoral epistles say there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings the man Christ Jesus or in another sense a derivative sense all Christians are mediators all Christians are priests in the sense that we have received something of the glory of the gospel ourselves and we carry the needs of the world on our knees before God in prayer and we carry the message of the gospel to the world by our deeds and our actions and our word and our proclamation. So in that sense, in a derivative sense, we're go-betweens. We're priests. Thus evangelism, for example, in Romans 15, is seen as priestly duty. But it's not restricted to a class of ministers called priests. It's it's Christian duty, you see. Now, likewise, there is this this multiple fulfillment of the notion of of temple in the New Testament. In, in, In the most focused sense, only Jesus is the temple. That is to say, he is the supreme meeting place. He is the unique meeting place in that he is the, the God-man. He is the one who, where, where the, the, the Word became flesh and lived amongst us. And he is the one who offered up his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In, in that sense, he is the unique meeting place. I, I can't be a meeting place in that sense. But then in, in a derivative sense, the whole church, as in 1 Corinthians 3, is sometimes called the temple of God, in that God by his Spirit takes up residence in it. In that sense, I... As, as part of the church, we are together the sanctuary of God, you see, declaring God's glory and grace to the nations. And then in one or two passages, as in 1 Corinthians 6, which is actually talking about sex and fornication, it's saying that your your body is the temple of the Spirit of God. And now, obviously, that's extending the metaphorical language one stage further. And it's not trying to make our body in particular a great meeting place. What it's trying to say is... You as a whole person has been, have been purchased for God, and therefore your whole being must be reserved for him. And God takes up residence in you by his spirit, and therefore be holy in all you say and do. So in, in the sense of, of, if you then ask me, am I then a sanctuary? Well, that, that's not biblical language particularly, except in that final and derivative sense that I'm supposed to be holy in all that I say and do. Corporately, all of us are, have this sort of temple role, if you like, of mediation. But, but not in exactly the same way that Christ does because we don't pay for sins by what we do or something like that. He is the unique mediator, he is the unique priest, and he is the unique temple. But then in this derivative sense, then we are collectively, as the church, likewise, the, 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 the temple of God. I think that's the way the New Testament language works. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you were saying, if you want to use sanctuary or temple... I don't mind if somebody says, I'm a temple of God, I'm a sanctuary of God, in the sense that this means that you are reserved for him to be holy. But not carrying with it all the notions of, of mediation or offering a sacrifice or, you know, it seems to me that that language is either reserved for Jesus or it is used collectively of the whole church. Right? Sir? Oh yes. That's a very good question. Why did the Romans destroy the temple when it was against their their, their, their their laws of desecration of the temple? Because at the end of the day, even their laws of the desecration of the temple were really motivated less by religion than politics. And once the Jews had rebelled, then they had to be taught a lesson. So you send in the Roman legions. And then the Roman policy was, if you did send in the, the, the forces, you crushed everything in sight. And um, and then when the Jews rebelled again in 132 to 135 in the so-called Bar Kokhba revolt, then not only was uh, was Jerusalem raised to the ground, not just the temple, the whole city was raised to the ground and it became a capital offense for any Jew to live anywhere in the whole area. And uh, they renamed Jerusalem the Aeolina Capitolina, erected false gods and so on, so on, so on. And and as a result, uh, you you, you then had the dispersion of Jews everywhere, which was not really restored until 1948. And um, uh, uh, so, at the end of the day, the Romans were more interested in politics than they were in religion. Religion was simply a tool to be used. And once the Jews had rebelled, retribution was inevitable. Yes. Did you hear the question? Yes. Um, There is always a need for Christian men and women to be full of zeal for the gospel, for the truth of God, and so on. On the other hand, the line between that and merely succumbing to the sort of angry young man syndrome, uh, where I've got it right and all my forebears have got it wrong, is sometimes thin. And uh, in my youth, I'm sure I've been on both sides of that one more than once. Um, there, there, is, there is sometimes a kind of um, genuine, revolutionary, God-fearing, reforming faith in uh, young folk who have not been seduced by all of the platitudes and the uh, hypocrisies of an older generation. But there is sometimes also just a kind of arrogance that the young people cannot see as arrogance precisely because they have not learned nuance or depth yet. And in fact, that can be the most appalling uh, zeal of all precisely because um, the person who is um, engulfed in it thinks that it's so pure. And moreover, Jesus at this point in his ministry is not uh, 17 either. He's uh, 30, 31. Uh, has been working for a lot of years, supporting the family, working as a carpenter. I mean, he, he's a mature young man. In fact, in terms of the lifespan of those days, he's middle-aged. And um, uh, and moreover, um, at some place we have to feed in the fact that Jesus really is the Son of God and is not being seduced by his own personal arrogance here. Uh, it's much more likely to happen to me. Um, uh but having said that, nevertheless, this does not then become an excuse for a kind of laissez-faire, don't rock the boat um, sort of approach, a, a kind of liturgical as it was in the beginning, is now and evermore shall be, world without end, amen. Um, and sometimes it does take a certain kind of um, of, of revolutionary upset. And, and in the history of the church, uh, God help us, there have been some revolutions both ways. That is, the people who have just been angry, young people who... Who end up just 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 being uh, cultic destroyers, and then there've been others like George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley and so on who eventually became enormous luminaries by the grace of God in the church. And uh, which one is sometimes only established with time. I am sure of this that the dividing line is whether there is a fundamental and deep-seated and thought through and mature and understanding and grasp of Scripture, and on the one hand, a real fear of, and, and love for God on the other, and a genuine, genuine compassion for people. I'm going to stick my neck out here and say something that I probably, I don't know if I should say it or not, but it's right on the edge of what something I should say in public or not, especially on tape, but I'll, I'll say it. <laughs> the difference between Francis Schaeffer and his son was precisely on this point when Francis Schaeffer uh, said sometimes the most blisteringly prophetic things, You never ever doubted that he loved you and that he loved the church and that he was a broken man. his son just too often sounded like an angry young man. Hmm. yeah, the question was um, um this this um, this lady has some questions about um, biblical prophecy. Um, are we really to hold that the Old Testament does uh, holistically point forward to Jesus? Because it really does seem as if there is a kind of proof texting that goes on in which this little bit is made to fit this and that little bit is made to fit that. and It's all very convenient, but you can probably prove anything that way. Is that, is that a fair representation of your, your question? Yeah. Um, my problem is you just hit my button. Um, I teach three Ph.D. seminars just on that question, and um, and, and, and it interests me enormously. And if, if, if the Lord gives me enough birthdays, um, one of the last big things I want to write in my high 60s, but I need to do some more stuff first in other areas, is a two-volume work on the relationship between the Testaments. When I did my Ph.D. at Cambridge, my doctor father was a chap called Barnabas Linders. And his first book was called New Testament Apologetic, in which his entire thesis was that the New Testament writers constantly ripped Old Testament texts out of their context. In other words, there's no real substantive connection whatsoever. But rather, they had come to be convinced about who Jesus was, and then they found nice little proof texts to prove their stuff. And they really didn't understand those Old Testament texts at all. And then along the spectrum, you read someone like, oh, John Broadus's commentary on Matthew, 1886. This is reverent, full of good theology, and so on, so on, so on. But every time he comes to Matthew quoting the Old Testament, the, uh, of the New Testament writers, Matthew and Hebrews are probably the toughest in terms of the way they use the Old Testament. Every time he comes to a, an Old Testament quotation from Matthew, he says something like this. I don't have a clue what Matthew was saying, but because it's the word of God, we must accept it, and we'll go on from there. That's it. That's what he says, you see, in, in, a, in, a, in a seven or 800 page commentary. Well, that's much better than my doctor father. or at least there's a bit of reverence there. He admits that he might not know something, uh, which my doctor father couldn't couldn't admit. Um, uh, so, so it's a markup. But I would want to argue that, in fact, there are whole patterns and structures, and one of the obligations of a Christian is to get his or her Bible together so that it's a unified Bible. I do think it holds together. The trouble is I can't answer it in two, two minutes. I mean, I've tried to give you some hints about the way some of those things work here. Um, and, 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 I, you could easily spend two or three weekend seminars to start finding the principles by which the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament. When you begin to see how they work, then there are a whole lot of other texts that begin to fall into those sorts of patterns as well. And you think, oh, the lights come on, oh, yes, oh, yes. And, 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 and the, how they're reading what the Old Testament text, what the warrant is. And how they differ from Jews. That's why I was going on about about a Christian Jew and a non-Christian Jew in the first century. They're reading the same text. Why why are they coming out with different answers? And and it's not just perversity on either side. There is a whole worldview that's different. And one of them is, in fact, one of the differences, one of the hermeneutical differences, is one has raised the loss of the level of hermeneutical control, and the other is reading it as part of a storyline. And it makes a huge difference in where you come out in the interpretation of the text, you see? And I would want to argue, if I had time, that the New Testament thinking through of these things is very deep, um, very realistic, textually complex, textually integrated, and really does confirm again and again and again again that the whole of the the Bible is nothing less than the Word of God. And I I think that's important not only from the point of view of having an integrated Bible, I think it's ultimately important for the formation of of your own worldview. It's, it's, It's how you create a unified outlook. A, a, a Christian worldview that's mature and stable. And if you don't have that, then, then you're far more in danger of becoming uh, eclectic. A little snippet from here and a snippet from there, and then you're not stable. You're always open to something else because you can always add a bit more into an eclectic pile. Uh, stable Christians who, who, who evangelize worldviewishly have to have a Christian worldview to begin with. So I, I do think that the subject is not merely for PhD students at Trinity. And there's a sense in which, in which this is part of worldview formation. And as I've done some more work on it, then I've discovered that, that in times past, all kinds of Christians have thought through these things before, again and again and again and again. And then they've been forgotten for one reason or another. Other interests have superseded them, and, and uh, new generations come along and ask different sets of questions, and they have to be resurrected. I, I came across a, a two-volume work by a chap called Taylor, written in the early 19th century, about uh, two years ago. That is out of print. I've not seen it referenced in any discussions in and in, 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 in use of the Old Testament and the New. And believe me, I've read scads of them. I started reading this stuff, and it just about popped my eyeballs out. The fellow had gone through a lot of these things and, and 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 seeing these things in categories very similar to the way I was trying to see them myself. In one sense, it was immensely reassuring because I don't think that that the Christians should ever be trying to be absolutely innovative. They want to belong to the, 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 the sort of mainstream of Christian tradition. You see. If you're completely new in Christian interpretation about a whole lot of stuff, probably you're wrong. And and so, so um, there's a sense in which it was rather reassuring, you see, to, to find this, this depth of richness that that uh, that in fact previous generations have thought through. Well, it depends what you mean by that. Um, um, you see, I'm not arguing that everything in Scripture has exactly the same weight. I'm not saying that. Jesus himself repudiates the idea. For example, when he's dealing with certain people in Matthew 23:23, 23, 23, um, he's talking about people who are so scrupulous in their tithing that they actually tithe the garden herbs they grow. They they grow a little bit of mint in the back garden, and they make sure that they count all the leaves and make 10% go off of the temple. And you know, he says, "You tithe mint and cumin and anise, but you have forgotten the weightier matters of the law: justice, mercy, and peace." And so, um, you know, I'm far from saying that everything in the law has exactly the same weight. And in any complex legal system, there is always a hierarchicalization. That's part of Jesus' argument, for example, in John 5 and John 8 on the Sabbath. He, there's one set of laws that says, you put aside the seventh day, make it holy, don't do any work. Another law says, you circumcise a male child on the eighth day. Supposing the eighth day of the child's life falls on the Sabbath, does the priest do the work of, of, of circumcision? You're going to break one of those laws. Which one is it? And in fact, the priest is supposed to circumcise the child, and thus the eighth day circumcision is maintained, the Sabbath is broken. That's what Jesus says. And, and the, whenever you have a complex system of laws, then, then inevitably there is a hierarchicalization that goes on. And if you get that hierarchicalization wrong, then you somehow jimmy up the entire genius of the whole system. I don't care whether you're talking about Hindu law or Christian, I mean, just the way it is. That's why also you have a Supreme Court to to, to try to adjudicate between conflicting inferences drawn from the same corpus. So there is a sense in which I would want to say that Jesus is the high point, all right. He's the high point in several ways. He is the one to which these Old Testament institutions look. They are genuinely pointing to him. Well, obviously, if they're pointing to him, then what they're pointing to is more important than the pointers themselves. You see a sign that says Chicago, 456 miles. That's Chicago is more important than the sign, and um, uh, at least I would like to think so. I mean, <laughs> and, um, and in fact, I'm going to take back to Chicago a new verb. Um, here, the weather Ithacates, I'm told. Uh, let me tell you, the, the Chicago weather Ithacates as well. Uh, <laughs> But I, I, I don't know if I can introduce Ithacates into Chicago. So instead of Chicago 8, I mean, it, it doesn't sound nearly as good. The, 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 so I, I, think, I think I've think got to bring back the verb to Ithacate to Chicago. Um, so, so within the, this, this frame of reference, I, I do want to say that Jesus really is the center. And in one sense, he does form the, the center in such a way that without him, you can't make sense of the whole. He, he, he himself does, in some sense, does exercise a kind of hermeneutical control. But, 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 but. I do not mean by that the kind of simple proof texting that says, oh, you've heard of the old joke, you know. Oh, the, 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 the minister's trying to, to tell a story to the, the, the seven-year-olds in the in, in children's meeting in the morning service or something, you know, and he, he's rabbiting on about this. I'm thinking about an animal. It's not very big. It's got a nice bushy gray tail. It jumps from branch to branch in the trees. It's usually gray. Loves nuts. It sometimes chatters in the treetops. What am I thinking of? What am I thinking of? He's trying to be ever so clever. And little Johnny puts up his hand and says, Sir, I'm sure the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a gray squirrel to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you, know, you, you know, there's some people who can make Jesus the answer to everything uh, w- w- without, without much coherence or thought or integration or whatever, you know? And, and I don't want Jesus to be the center in that sense. That's just perverse. Uh, but I am saying that when you have the whole Bible put together appropriately and hermeneutically in a controlled way, Jesus does emerge as the center.